tennis fans and welcome to yet another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis joined alongside Mike McIntyre and well this past week we witnessed history at the Davis Cup for the Canadian squad. It was just another cherry on top for the remarkable 2019 that it has been for Canadian tennis as their squad of Denis Shapovalov, Vashik Pospisil, Felix Ojealiasim and Braden Schnur advanced the country to its first ever Davis Cup final before eventually falling to Spain and uh, capturing all the action courtside throughout the week uh, was Sportsnet's Arash Madani, and he joins us for episode 25. Arash, uh, I, I know you might be a little jet-lagged, but uh, thank you so much for coming on the program this week. Yeah, you got it. How we doing, fellas? We are doing great. We can't complain after a week like that. I mean, if, if Ben and I are complaining about anything after seeing what Canada just did, then uh, we're seriously covering the wrong sport, I think. Yeah, no, no kidding. That was... Uh... That was a week for the ages and a run for the books. It was it was pretty remarkable. Well, for yourself, I, I know you've you've covered uh, not only numerous sporting events uh, over the years with Sportsnet, but uh, you have been on hand for a, a number of these Davis Cup ties and, and followed this Canadian team as it's changed and as it's evolved. Uh, did you ever expect a week like this coming from this squad? Well, I mean, you just first of all, you never know, right? You just you. you with the first of all, the new format, you have no idea what to expect. And then you get in there because for years, guys, as you know, it's a best of five, which is an altogether different animal. And, you know, you're in a scenario where you're planning for a third match and getting everything together at four all of 30, and five minutes later, the match is over. It's, to, to me, the takeaway story of all this was possible. And I guess there were signs that you could see this coming. The round of 16 run to Shanghai in October, winning the back-to-back challenger titles. But again, you never know. You never know what level he's going to play in. You never know what level he's going to play in in those conditions, how the body is going to hold up in the aftermath of surgery, rehab, and you know the volume that he had in, in the fall. And then it just all came together. And each day we kind of, as soon as the match was done and we did our interviews were wrapped up, we're kind of cleaning up our gear and cameraman and producer kind of look the three of us look at each other and you're like, you know, holy crap, like this is happening right now. So it's hard. You know, the players said, said they didn't see it coming and I believe them. Uh, but it's, it's just so hard to know in a new format and in a, in a, you know, in a scene that can change so quickly how it's all going to unfold. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll start on on Vashik because you know I, back in the summertime we had a chance to talk with him on the podcast, uh, and he was just making his return to the tour, of course, after that back surgery and, and uh, playing at Wimbledon, and it, it sounded to us like he was tempering his expectations, maybe hoping for to string a few wins here or there to kind of close out 2019, hopefully on a positive note. And what we saw from him this week, I mean, is this the best tennis he's ever played in singles? It was just unbelievable. 
I don't know about that. Um, let's remember this is this is a kid who was top twenty five in January of twenty fourteen. Yeah. He was on a heck of a run in thirteen and then came Wimbledon twenty fifteen when he got to the quarters, you know, and Andy Murray knocked him out there. So he's had a couple of good runs. But under the circumstances, this has been terrific. And Vashik was the first to say, I think after the Australia win, you know, he admitted he didn't see this coming. He said, I, I was just hoping to be healthy by the end of the season. And instead, this has all unfolded. You're seeing a lot of his weapons really start to work. The serve is cooking again. He's confident with it. You know, the, from a fitness standpoint, he's there. I asked him, how long did it take for you to feel right again? And he said eight months, which basically takes you into September, um, right after he beat Karen Hachanoff at, at the U.S. Open. But the one thing Vashik said, guys, in our sit-down on Saturday, two days before the tournament started, he said, I have the confidence that I can get back at a top 25 level. Dancevich, who, of course, is his coach, Frank said, he's already playing at a top 25 level. That's why he beat Diego Schwartzman in Shanghai and, you know, was able to get to the, to the end of the week. So, you know, I, long-term, sitting him yesterday was probably the best thing to happen because that body was running on fumes. I know Bashik wanted to play and the emotion and the rest of it, but he's going to have a, a full off-season, a healthy off-season, and no points to defend until what? August? Late August? Um, sky's the limit for him. Not not a bad way to look at starting your, your next season and, and coming in at the same time as everybody else, starting right out of the gate with all your competitors, but knowing, like you just mentioned, that everything is gravy for the first chunk of the season. Sure. Yeah. Sure, and there's not a lot after that, to be quite honest. One round. I don't think he won a round at the Rogers Cup, or maybe he did win one match. Um, but one, one round at the U S open and really it's on until October has anything to defend the, the partnership with Dancevich is really working. They, they found they, they communicate really well. They found kind of what works for them and they're working on his weapon there. You know, it's, it's forehand, it's movement, it's serve. And those are the things that, that are really effective. Frank said that they've actually, made his serve a little more compact and that's made it more aggressive, but also more accurate and he can go with it. Um, so I'm of all these guys, because you know, OJ Alia seems catching nobody by surprise anymore. Shapovalov's 15 in the world. To me, there's no more intriguing player right now in Canadian tennis than a dude who's turning 30 next year. Yeah. He's suddenly become the, uh, the, the veteran of the squad here all of a sudden. Yeah, veteran of the squad. The guys love him, and he's willing to do whatever. You know, I think coming in, if Felix wasn't hurt, Vashik just would have played doubles. Next thing you know, he was he was the guy they looked to, he was the guy they relied to, and he was the guy who delivered. What's the uh, the team dynamic like? I mean, you would have been around them all week long, not just with the interviews, but but seeing them, you know, around the court, the hotel, what have you. What what's the off court role that these guys kind of play, and how did that team chemistry develop? over the course of the week with the two young kids and then Vashik, the veteran, Frank Dancevich, uh, Danny Nestor was kicking around too. How did everything sort of gel and, and mesh in that sense? Might have been the, the best team camaraderie I've seen since starting this thing in 2011. Okay. These guys actually give a bleep about one another. <laughs> 
they, you know, Dennis and Felix, we know are friends. Dennis looked up to Vashik. Um, that Vashik is really the glue of that group. And it's interesting. I, I think part of the soul of that team that nobody really thinks or talks about is Braden Schnoor. Braden's a different cat than the rest of them. He went, he took the college route. He's, he's just a different guy and he's willing to do anything. But what really impressed me about the team dynamic guys is not just that they went out for dinner every night to the same sushi restaurant by the hotel and kept that place in business. <laughs> Isn't that they were really loose and joking around and one line zingers, you know, the day after one of those emotional and draining matches in practice. It was when they won the semifinal, and in the lead-up to the win of the semifinal, Felix is on the edge of his seat. He is not quite literally biting his fingernails, but he is so nervous. And when they won to clinch their spot in the final, he was in tears for his teammates, for his team. Here you have the world number 21 who had been healthy for a few days, pain-free for a few days, in his mind match-ready for a few days, not getting the call because Frank's going with the hot hand in Vashik. And Felix is so overwhelmed with happiness for what's happening for all of them in an individual sport. And I thought that that said a lot about the character of the kid more than anything else. Certainly bodes well for the future to have a team that's not just individual talents, but together as well, really supporting well, each well, other. And they, want to, and they want to play, Yeah, which is a big part of it. Of course, of course. Hey, uh, Arash, the, the format obviously is, uh, is brand new and, and we've now experienced it for the first time in a, in a week-long uh, Davis Cup Finals. Tennis fans and pundits alike were deeply divided on social media before the event, during the event, and even now afterwards with their comments. It really runs the gamut of people who are still against the new format and, and others who've now embraced it because they've seen parts of it that really work. Uh, regardless of how positive an experience experience it was for team Canada. What do you make personally and what's your impression of this new format? Does it, does it work? And is it something that can be sustained moving forward? Okay. So I was a fan of the old format and like Rick Pitino, when he was talking to Boston reporters in the early nineties, mid nineties, Kevin McHale isn't walking through that door. Larry Bird is that door. <laughs> the old format is dead. It's over. It's finished. It's not coming back. The old format, unfortunately, not sustainable. More and more guys weren't playing. Davis Cup was dying. A slow to um, medium pace death. It's over. Best of five is over. The old format is over. The new format is different. The new format needs some work. There were, look, the tech. The, the event could have come across as a disaster logistically with everything happening around it, but the tennis saved it. At the same time, you can't have the U.S. playing Italy at 4.06 a.m. in Dublin. <laughs> it doesn't work. And, and the ask of some of these players to play four or five matches in consecutive days on that indoor hard court is too much. But the question, that, you know, the point, though, fellas, is what can you do? You're charging exorbitant broadcast fees to pay out the exorbitant player salaries to get them to come, the prize money. And so that means you have to have one stadium court. And you can't start it three days before. You can't have it over two weekends because the World Tour Finals are going on. So, you know, if Novak's going to end up in the Tour Finals against Rafa, 
where does that leave Serbia and Spain for the first two days of the tournament? So I, I don't know what happens. The schedule, the season is already busy enough. It's packed enough. It's long enough. I don't know what the solution is in terms of days. Gerard Piquet wants to make it a two-week event. Of course he does. He wants to make more money. But you know, logically and logistically, there are some things in it that didn't work. There are some things that really did work. I just don't know what the solution can be if we're being real about the season and the schedule and, and what's required with it. Well, and uh, I, I mean, we've covered this for some time, just <laughs> how ridiculous a tennis season is. I, I mean, we're, we're having this conversation on, on November 25th, and, and you want to talk about off-season for tennis players. What, what off-season is existing? Yeah, we're exhausted yeah. from covering it, let alone the guys playing on it. Right, and, you know, for Felix Auger-Aliassime, his off-season starts tomorrow or the next day. Think about that. When he suffered the ankle injury in Vienna in practice, basically for two weeks, he put the tennis racket aside. He did some fitness and off-court stuff, but basically went on vacation. You know, yesterday, Sunday was the first match he played in six and a half weeks. Felix took his off-season when hurt. So he's going to get right into it. And now with the ATP Cup, a lot of these guys are going to be flying to Australia around Christmas, give or take a day, to get themselves you know, ready for the heat, ready for the conditions, um, and ready for the, you know, that first team tournament of the year because it's going to happen fast. And the belief that a, lot, a bunch of them have is there'll be a few players doing the exact same thing, so they'll have practice partners with it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a real problem. It's a real issue. And, you know, when you have the ranking system the way it is and the calendar the way it is and the money the way it is, um, I don't know. And in an Olympic year next year, I don't know how that one gets fixed either. Yeah, no, no, no kidding. Um, all, all that being said, in, in terms of Felix and, and what he did, uh, stepping in um, in the finals against Spain, I, I did think he handled himself well and, and had to pay, uh, face a, an inspired Roberto Bautista Agud, who, who sadly uh, lost uh, his father just a few days ago. How do you think uh, Felix maybe responded to that difficult environment in the final against Spain in Madrid? It felt like a tough scenario. Do you think, do you think that was the right decision? I don't think it was a decision. I really don't. I mean, what, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, how many sets have Vashik played? Mm-hmm. What's his gas tank level? The shoulder was tightening up on him. I mean, you know, his knees stitched up. Vashik wanted to play. There's no question. But to me, that wasn't even a decision. And it wouldn't have mattered who played Roberto Bautista. You know, he's the world number nine. Spain was better, guys. And I had to tell some people that at the airport today, some of the Canadian fans, thinking that that move really tilted the, you know, we should have got the hot hand. Oh, man, the hot hand was on fumes. It it was done. And, you know, you have to do the responsible thing in case you somehow pull off an upset in one of the two matches. And, man, Dennis pushed Nadal. um, You need something there for doubles. Look, I, I was impressed with OJ Elliott's team. I think he got caught up a little bit in it, but he fought. You know, the, what was it? Bautista Gu, the first 13 uh, points on his serve in the match, he won. But I'm, I'm really intrigued to see how Felix responds in 2020, guys. He, he said, look, I'm setting no limits for myself. He told me he wants to win titles, as in plural, 
He said, when you have 20 guys ahead of you right now in the rankings, you've got to know them a little bit. You've got to know how you think you can beat them moving forward. He, he was very cautious coming into 2019 with expectations and didn't set a ranking goal or anything like that. But he is talking big and bold for next season. And I'm very intrigued now that he, you know everybody knows who he is. He's got a target on his back. And how is he going to handle it, especially with points to defend in the South American clay court season, in the U.S. hard court season? Um, how is he going to deal with all of that? These are some intriguing questions for a kid who's going to be 19 for half the season next year. Yeah, and uh, this is really setting up, I think, just a very intriguing 2020. I think some of these names we can lump in together, probably creating lofty goals for themselves. You look at that uh, that Russian team that Canada faced. I think there are some parallels to be made of young players like Andrei Rublev and Karen Hatchinov, who have made so many great inroads in the rankings. Hatchinov at one point, top 10 in the world. Um, and, and Felix, of course, the three ATP finals. Um, and, and, you know, he's, he's one of the most athletic players on tour already. So how strong is he going to get, uh, in, in the years to come? We'll have to see, uh, you, you mentioned Spain just being too good. And, and I think we have to talk about Rafael Nadal, who seems sometimes in tennis too good for this planet. Um, in, in terms of maybe most competitive athletes, you've had a chance to, to see in your lifetime. Where is, where is a Rafael Nadal ranking on that list? You know what I was thinking about yesterday? Pat Riley had this line. He said, somebody asked him, if there's a game on the line and you need to make a winning shot, who would you pick? And Riley thought about it. He said, if the game's on the line, I need a shot to win it, I'm picking Michael Jordan. He said, if my life is on the line and I need somebody to hit a shot, I'm picking Larry Bird. And I think that if, if... if my life's on the line, I need to pick one guy to win one match for me. It's rough and a doubt. You know, with the game's on the line, when you really need to win it, Novak is fine. That's great. He's going to do it. But Rafa is something else. You talked about a fighter. You talked about a team guy. You talked about somebody who's just going to leave his soul out there on the court. Guys, he treats a, a Monday practice in Montreal the same as he would the fifth set of a Wimbledon final, the same way he would the third set of a deciding Davis Cup tie. Um, And what else can you say? Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, to think, to think, Rafa told me at Rogers Cup that after Indian Wells, he, he legitimately thought about shutting down the season. He said there were a number of injuries. There were a number of injuries that weren't reported. He said, you know, I couldn't even train. I'm in so much pain. It made, competing almost impossible we just gave it a little more time and he's like you know kind of took a turn of the clay court season went from there i mean he nearly shut down his season in march and he ends up winning two more slams will finish the season the world number one again and he just wins spain's sixth davis cup and his fourth and he almost shut down the season yeah that's, uh, what world is this? <laughs> it's uh, it's unbelievable. Well, I mean, put it in perspective. Denis Shapovalov hadn't turned five years old the last time Rafael Nadal lost a match at Davis Cup. Wow! Um, and I, I'm just always amazed that someone with his level of achievement, title after title, Grand Slam after Grand Slam, that he seems to remain humble in all of it to to a degree. He he never he never seems to carry the 
the huge ego with them, which I, I find just unbelievable. Humble, but also yeah, hungry. But also I hungry. That. You, you, uh, I think that might be a stretch. All right, that's fair. Right. Rafa has a very <laughs> healthy ego. But, but what he does is he treats every competition like it's the last match he's ever going to play. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Total pro. Total pro. Hey, Arash, I wanted to talk a bit about the human element because for me, in terms of things that worked, things that clicked for this Davis Cup installment, it was watching those, you know, three, four hundred rabid, you know, Canadian fans that made many of their matchups sound like it was a home tie here on our soil. Uh, what can you tell us about these fanatics? Who are these people and uh, how can you describe the passion that they displayed over in Madrid this past week? Yeah, they, they stole the show. I mean, outside the Spanish fans in their own backyard, they were incredible. They broke a cowbell. They broke a cowbell. They were cheering so loud and banging the thing so hard, and they, they went to a Yamaha store downtown and found a new one. Because they needed more cowbells. Yeah, you never deal with enough cowbell. Distinct home court advantage. Gave a lift to those players. Um, everything the atmosphere of Davis Cup should be. Uh, tremendous. Just tremendous and real, and they cared. And I'll tell you this, just personally, my uncle is a big tennis fan. He moved to Spain uh, in the late 70s. He lived in Madrid, you know, his, basically his entire adult life, and loves tennis. And he watched every Canadian match on television until yesterday. He showed up wearing red and wanted to sit with the Canadian fan. He and his wife and two friends. They were so caught up in the whole thing. They loved it. And, um, you know, no hooliganism, nothing like that. It's just, it, and it, Dennis wanted to get them going. Vashik wanted to get them going. And they responded, and it, and it helped the guys in the court. It was awesome. Man, it didn't seem like they needed a lot to, uh, to wind them up either. That just came from within. Um, how about personally for you, Arash, uh, if you put your media duties aside, um, I just how much fun it was to be there, to be the first one on court talking to Vashik and Dennis after these huge moments and after all you've covered and been through. And, and you're a tennis fan too. What, what fun it must have been for you uh, being over there this past week. Yeah, and it's just everything... You, know, you always prepare for situations, especially in a live show and a live broadcast. But it just felt the whole thing was surreal to everybody. To Frank, to the players, to me, to the fans. That, like, is this really happening? Like, you know, is, is this continuing to go on? And it, it was real cool. And it was great to capture what it meant to those guys and the emotion of it in the immediate aftermath. Especially Vashek with the year he's had and playing Davis Cup being so important to him. You know, well after the semifinal, about an hour later, I interviewed Vashik. And he said that if they won it yesterday, it would have meant more to him than winning the Wimbledon doubles title. I believe it. And that blew me away. Yeah. That blew me away. Um, you know, not a lot of hyperbole there. He meant it. So that was pretty cool. I, I mean, I've been to Grand Slams. I've been to Davis Cup before. And there's just something a little extra special Uh when you have, especially, and it's too bad, there won't be a, a home tie, I guess, for Canada in, in 2020 by virtue of their great performance here this week. I will miss that, but, boy, those fans over there sure made it feel like a home tie, and it did capture some of that Davis Cup magic that's just irreplaceable, and if you've never been to one, uh, it's hard to really properly describe it. Um, but Arash, you did a great job, as always, being over there, capturing all those those special moments. You must be obviously pretty exhausted, too, and we thank you so much again for taking the time 
Uh, you're up there as one of our most repeated guests, I think, on the podcast. Oh, there yeah. you go. And there's there good, you go. There's good reason for that. So uh, we, we can't wait to see what 2020 has in store for Canadian tennis, and we know that we can count on you to, to be there for all of it. So uh, thanks again, my friend, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. All anytime, fellas. Thank you very much. That was uh, Sportsnet's Arash Madani, and you can follow him on Twitter at Arash Madani, uh, covering all week Canada's unbelievable run to the Davis Cup finals. Uh, I, I just wanted to bring up a, a quote from Rafael Nadal post-match about this Canadian team because I, I think it uh, well describes the type of week that that they had and, and how well they're also respected now by fellow tennis countries. Uh, he said, quote, the Canadian team is amazing. They're amazing today. They're going to be one of the teams that's going to be almost unbeatable in the next couple of years. They have a strong team on all surfaces. And, of course, Denis Shapovalov playing that final singles rubber against Nadal. Nadal winning that uh, in straight sets, 6-3-7-6. Nadal saying about Dennis, who's still just 20 years old, Dennis is special. He has a lot of things that you can't practice. You have it or you don't, and he has it. Uh, so getting... Uh, that level of praise from the world number one, I think is, uh, you know, it means something. Not too shabby. And, uh, you know, Canada is not going to be able to fly under the radar anymore and take people by surprise. And not just by virtue of the way they finished the season at Davis Cup, but all the success has been that you and I have been talking about throughout the year. I mean, it couldn't have been better for Tennis Canada, for Canadian tennis, for us being a Canadian-themed uh, tennis podcast as well, and uh, not to mention Canadian tennis fans who have just been loyally patiently waiting for this golden era to be upon us and these guys and girls in 2019 did not disappoint but we can't go in there and expect to surprise anyone because the biancas and the felixes dennis and vashik as well with the great way that he's ended the season people are going to be ready for us in 2020 but it is great to hear the likes of world number one all-time great giving that kind of praise to Canadian tennis. Yeah, uh, but uh, Arash Madani pointed out with Felix that that's going to be the case for every Canadian player. For 2020, they're going to have a target on their back. Uh, you know, B- Bianca's not going to surprise everybody. She has the respect of all of the WTA Tour for what she accomplished in 2019. Felix and Dennis are, are right up there as well. And Vashik Pospisil with this unbelievable fall around the two challenger titles and then uh, his level of play at, at Davis Cup. And, uh, you know, the, the format being a work in progress is interesting, but certainly everybody in Canada was sold when you get a result uh, like them going to the final. Just uh, quickly recapping what they did um, through the week. They opened in Group F and uh, defeated Italy in the U.S. Vashri Pospisil getting two singles wins over Fabio Fanini and Riley Opelka, two great players. Uh, Denis Shapovalov defeating uh, Matteo Berrettini, which is a great win, also beating Taylor Fritz. Then in the quarters, Canada takes out Australia. Pospisil again delivers delivering in singles, beating John Millman, uh, and then Pospisil and Shapovalov teaming up for the doubles, beating uh, Jordan Pierce uh, and Jordan Thompson, pardon me. Uh, and in the semifinals against Russia, Rublev defeats Pospisil. Shapovalov keeps them alive with a big win over Karen Hatchinoff, and then they win the doubles rubber again. That's a lot what of... What a doubles <laughs> match, too, eh? What that a was tense great. finish to that doubles Seven, match. Seven, six in the third set, and... Um, you know, they played so much tennis, those two. Shapovalov they carried them. They, they, they carried yeah, them through literally. every round. <laughs> and you could have forgiven them if it hadn't worked out at some point and they had run out of gas, but mm. they managed to find a way. Even in the round robin, when you see Italy and the United States, if we hadn't emerged from that group, I think we could have said, you know what? 
uh, understandable. It wouldn't have been shocking if either the U.S. or Italy had had beaten us. You look at those players, but both Vashik and Dennis did exactly what they had to do in in beating them, yeah. and that set the stage for moving for just building upon that, right, and feeding off of each other. I was so impressed with the doubles chemistry between Vashik and Dennis, who I believe had never, is it true they had never played professionally, I don't think, together? I, I don't believe so. I don't think so either, which is wild that they would team up for the first time here in Davis Cup and have that kind of chemistry and connection. Now, we all know Vashik has been a great doubles player in the past, mm-hmm. and, and Dennis concentrated more than I would have expected on his doubles this year too, but it wasn't with each other. And I'd like to kind of see the two of them play together as a even semi-regular pairing because they clearly have some mojo and it would only serve them well in terms of other international competitions, whether it be the ATP Cup, next year's Davis Cup uh, final week, which they've already qualified for, and the Olympics too. No kidding. Uh, No kidding. Yeah, you could give Canada a chance to to medal at the Olympics if those two are playing doubles regularly or or semi-regularly, as you mentioned. Obviously, they're going to have, uh, you know, big singles calendars ahead of them for for 2020. But if you can mix in even just a little bit of doubles, uh, you know, it's going to help your tennis as well. Help your hands and feel at the net, I I think, would be something great for Shapovalov. And we already know how good Vashik is in in doubles, as we've talked about before. This was, uh, you know, as we mentioned, Canada's best result ever at Davis Cup. They did make the semifinals in 2013, um, beating Spain actually there in round one. Uh, if you want to put an asterisk on it, that Rafael Nadal was not there. Uh, but still, that was that was a terrific result. They beat Italy there in the quarterfinals. And they were steady staying in that world group stage for, for seven consecutive years. And now we enter the new format. But uh, this finals appearance is, is something else. And already getting that immediate qualification for next year is huge. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, and remember, you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada and also now part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And being a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, we are connecting with other podcasts that are also in the fold. And uh, joining us today is Alex Gruskin, uh, who is with the Cracked Racket Podcast. And we're going to do a little home and away where uh, he's going to come on and chat with us. And then either Ben or myself will uh, return the favor with him sometime next week. So, Alex, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Well, it's only fitting that post-Davis Cup where home and away ties have been obliterated that we decided to resurrect it. So it's an honor, guys. Welcome to the Tennis Channel Podcast Network family. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. And it's nice to see this U.S.-Canadian uh, you know, collaboration, despite mm-hmm. how things went in Davis Cup the other day. <laughs> well, you know, for you guys who don't know, I am from Michigan. So I'm close enough to the border where maybe it hurts me less than the average fan. But yeah, I'm a little salty coming on here today. Well, we'll get to that in a few moments. But to start, Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself as a tennis enthusiast, your background with the sport, and uh, maybe share a bit about the podcast that you're involved with as well. <laughs> well, I, I know you guys had a really fun first guest, so you know, I'll try and keep this story short. I am a life player. I have two brothers. Both of them played. Uh, my mom will claim she played. The history on that is suspect. Uh, my dad will not claim, but, you know, we get him on the court as well. And so it's always been a big part of my life. Flash forward to college, I did not play at a university like so many great Canadian players are. I was not a Braden Schnur. I was not a Ben Seguin, a Josh Peck. Uh, I actually applied to UNC and got waitlisted. So 
that hurts me as well. But I did have the opportunity to play club tennis there, played with my doubles partner, Max Roth, and now my co-host on the Great Shot podcast, which was our foray into tennis with when I graduated college in 2017. It was a matter of how am I going to keep tennis in my life? I'm not going to be playing. And so, you know, I chat about it so often. I was like, Max, you, you seem crazy enough to do this with me. We had a friend who could produce. We met Dalton Westoff, our Crack Rackets team, along the way. And three years later, now we talk a lot about tennis. And again, when Tennis Channel came calling, much like you guys, when you're in tennis media, there's no one to be partnered with better than the Tennis Channel. And so much like uh, you, we're thrilled to get to partner with other networks, just advance the tennis conversation, whether it's daily coverage or the big stories, obviously, uh, I myself, born in 1995, uh, resonate with a lot of these young guys. Uh, I consider anyone younger than me next gen. So the Medvedevs of the world all the way through to the FAAs, uh, those are guys I feel like I grew up with. I saw updates about them my whole life. In theory, if I reached the top of the sport, that's who I would have been competing with. Obviously, that wasn't the case. Uh, but to see them succeed now, it's it's half the fun of this. And so, you know, that's what we do at Crack Rackets. We talk about all those things that make tennis so enjoyable, so unintentionally comedic. And again, to get the chance to talk to other people in the tennis community who see the sport the same way we do. I, I can't believe how old I feel now after you mentioned. to bring that up. Hey. <laughs> even, even Ben feels old and he's quite a few years younger than I am. So uh, thanks for, you know, breaking my spirit right off the top of the show here uh, with you. Um <laughs> Alex, the, the end of the tennis season is is finally upon us, and I don't know about you guys, I'm exhausted, maybe it's an age thing again, but uh, from covering the sport for these 11 months, let alone how players must, must feel after traveling the globe, traversing time zones, and playing in all these events, uh, Alex, how do you feel by the time the end of the tennis season arrives? <laughs> well... Let me just say, and again, I, I maybe it's that we're in Canadian territory with this part of the podcast. I feel that the natural need to apologize. So I apologize for what I'm about to say, but we've had the chance in our podcast, the mini break, Cracked Interviews, Great Shot Podcast. I told you I'd get the plugs in. There guys, you go. You did uh, it. You did inter- it. Yes, exactly. To interview fellow journalists. And I appreciate that question because I've asked the same question. There are so many narratives uh, throughout what it's 52 weeks in a year. We say there's a five week off season generously. So like 48 weeks of tennis. There's so much to follow. You know, do you remember when Daniil Medvedev was losing a couple matches in a row during the clay season? I don't because mm-hmm. that felt like years ago. And so there is some fatigue. That being said, we finally have some time to sit back and maybe it's because it's 2019 in particular, but you look at the span of the decade now and the trends that have emerged. And it does seem like finally, given the way 2019 ended with guys like Medvedev, like Tsitsipas, like, you know, Canada's very own Denis Shapovalov playing so strongly on the ATP side, on the WTA side, obviously the Bianca and Drescu victory uh, celebration continues. Um, but her and just all of the young, talented players for Americans, Sophia Kennan, Amanda Nisimova, Vondrusova, Naomi Osaka, Ashley Barty's younger than me. I think she's 23 as well. So it does seem like at the end of this decade, we are finally turning a page on what was, you know, what is it now, 20 years of Roger Federer. And then along the way, we've added the rest of the big four. 
Yeah, and uh, I don't know if that answered your question, but <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's a lot going on. I think uh, no, I think it does answer the question. And yeah, the young talent is just bursting at the seams, as you mentioned on the women's tour and men's tour. And uh, thank you for acknowledging uh, the Canadian example because it was at the forefront this past week. Even though uh, Canada did fall to Spain in this Davis Cup final, you have a 20 year old who's now 15th in the world in Denis Shapovalov. Felix Ojeda-Aliassim stepped in in that final, and he's 21st in the world. And, and still uh, a teenager. Um, and and it, it happens so late in the season, as you mentioned, we're talking 48 weeks out of 52 and they're playing in that final week. W- what was your take on, on the overall quality of the product maybe we saw uh, in Madrid at Davis Cup this past week? So I do have many thoughts. I'm not ducking the question because Canada be- but to flip that previous one on you, you guys have had what one heck, uh, I almost swore we do that on Crack Rackets interviews because we have a lover, lovely production team. I will not do that here. Um, but you guys have had a heck of a run these past three months. You know, you have the Andrescu, her run through the hardcourt summer, obviously Shapovalov getting his first title uh, ever, but now, you know, first final in Davis Cup history for Team Canada. How's it, how's it feeling on the Team Canada side? Obviously, you guys have to be feeling encouraged at the very least heading into 2020. Yeah, that's a, that's a grand, grand understatement. 2019 has just been, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it has to be the greatest uh, single tennis season in Canadian history, uh, with, without a doubt. Uh, even, even the way it started, actually, if you go back to Auckland in January, with Bianca Andreescu when really nobody outside of us knew her name uh, reaching a finals there and then we had what three ATP finals and the unbelievable South American swing from Felix Ojeal Yassim uh, it felt when when even Denis Shapovalov was maybe a little bit down, we had other players that were so up. Uh, Braden Schnur, who was part of this Team Canada, making his first final at the New York Open, that completely came out of nowhere. Uh, Bianca returning from injury to win our home event in Toronto was just unbelievable. It seemed like there was always someone. There was always someone to pick up that torch. There was never a lull. There was never a dull moment. Every single week. Right? Like when Dennis was struggling a little midseason, you know, there were others like Bianca was getting into form. Then she had her injury but came back in the summertime there was always someone to make us feel like yeah you know this is being sustained this isn't just a one month or two month thing no kidding this is a uh, you know a real upswell of uh, tennis in our country like you mentioned that we've never seen before it's so funny you mentioned that FAA clay court run through South America. That was ages ago, right? And it it's was. like he has done so many individual matches. You've seen the tape on him. You know his past former Junior Slam champion that it was never in doubt. But you're like, oh, yeah, you know, as good as Shapovalov has been, what, what did FAA make? Three finals in that span? Something like that. And so – that yeah, that there was good tennis all the way around it. You know, beats last year when it was like, hey, remember how Peter Polanski got lucky losers into all four Grand Slam first <laughs> rounds? Like, yeah. great year for Tennis Canada. So yeah, 2019 was awesome. But then to have it all come to a crux at the Davis Cup and a guy we haven't talked about yet, but Vashik Pospisil, who you know ruins the USTA uh, Australian Open wildcard challenger for some when he goes and wins in Charlottesville and Davis Cup being indoors. That's an obvious choice for Team Canada on the team, given his play of late, given his success in doubles, grand, former Grand Slam champion there. To see him perform the way he did down the home stretch, to see Denis Shapovalov continue to play as well as he had. And again, we're all northern tennis players. You play indoors a lot. That they did it indoors to me, it was just like, it was that coup de grace. Like, ah, 
there is a place for indoor superstars. Yeah, I, I think one thing I, I really hope uh, can evolve from the young superstars that we have in Canada um, is a potential rivalry, I think, with some of the players in the United States. And we saw Canada show down with the U.S. in, in Group F at Davis Cup and, of course, Canada getting the upper hand there. But uh, the United States does have some young young phenoms, as it were, in, in Francis Tiafo, who's maybe had a bit of a down season post-Australian Open. And, and then Taylor Fritz was, was back battling against Denis Shapovalov. Do you think uh, we can have those sort of rivalries between country, even though we are discussing an individual sport? So now it, it's interesting because I was going to save this question for when you guys came and did a home appearance for me on the mini break podcast. See another sneak plug. Um, but it, it's just, I, I'm curious for you guys because as successful as, the Canadian men and women have been this year. Where do you think this Davis cup result stacks in the, you know, national sports power rankings priorities, because in America, you know, right now it's football season. It's the start of basketball season. That's obviously on the top of everyone's minds. And yes, you know, if Roger Federer's playing in labor cup, Chicago United arena is going to sell out, even if it's a, you know, non grand slam team sort of event, but you know, this it, it, it's very difficult. TV rights aside that the Davis Cup had, you know, I was joyful to discover that my parents had FS2 this weekend when I was watching at, you know, at their house. I was like, oh, like perfect. I actually get to watch FA play Roberto Bautista Agut. Um, but I would I, I'm just worried that from a David, you know, fans of tennis in America are very individual focused. And so, again, to flip this to you guys, where do you think that team success racks up in the power rankings? How aware do you think, or how did the Canadian sports audience at large become, and were they of this sort of result for Canada? Yeah, well, we got to see it all here, at least. Sportsnet was playing all the matches, so it wasn't a struggle <laughs> uh, for Canadian tennis mm. fans to get to watch Canada in action. Now, didn't get to watch any of the other nations, from what I, I gathered, but we got to see our Canadian players go, which was great. Uh, it is a bit of an awkward time of the year, because you know, people's uh, interest in tennis, the casual sports fan, probably at this time of the season, tennis isn't at the forefront of their minds. Uh, as you mentioned, it's pretty chilly up here, and so it's not like we're out on the outdoor courts playing anymore. But um, but I had a lot of friends and coworkers and people I came across over the past week that as the week sort of went on and as Canada continued to surprise and progress and we saw more and more on the morning, you know, highlight packages, more and more casual people, casual sports fans, tennis fans that I wouldn't have expected were asking me about, hey, what's going on with this Davis Cup? So I think as the week built, so too did the enthusiasm for what was happening. Now, if Canada hadn't had such a deep run, it would have been sort of a footnote in the week's sporting events. Mm -hmm. But given what happened and given the fact that tennis has been pushed towards not the absolute forefront, but it's up there now in terms of our sporting consciousness after what's happened this year, uh, I think it certainly received more attention than it otherwise would have. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's where I would, you know, to dig in this one. I wonder if you ask the casual Canadian sports fan right now, given that the Maple Leafs just fired former Detroit Red Wings head coach Mike Babcock, what's closer to happening, a Canadian men's singles Grand Slam title or a Toronto Maple Leafs ending the Stanley Cup drought they have? Whoa, whoa, I whoa, whoa. Alex, Alex, take say. it take it easy there, Alex. Okay, I'm born and raised in, in Montreal, diehard Habs fan. Let's not be bringing the Maple Leafs onto my podcast with Ben here, okay? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, look, I had to come loaded. Um, yeah, I mean, so the, with that, the reason I bring up that context is because in terms of an inner country rivalry, I think all of these young guys as individuals are so close. Opelka and Dimenauer and Shapovalov, FAA, Tiafo, uh, Kasmanovich, the whole group is close in the next-gen next gen campaign thus far looks like it's been a rousing success uh but does that mean the stakes for these matches aren't high absolutely not if you watch pospisil play opelka that was a two tie break match you watch you know taylor fritz shapovalov or shapovalov versus hatchinov for russia later on guys relative proximity in terms of their youth i just think how much young talent there is on the atp that all of these young guys seem to really love the team events davis cup has some pk cup whatever you want to call it has some issues to work out but I think the on-court product and the player buy-in is there. And that is, you know, a lot, if not at least half of the battle. Yeah, absolutely. And and the team concept, I mean, I as a, as a hockey fan, first and foremost, growing up, I love team atmospheres. And so to get that on the tennis court anytime is good with me. I'm, I'm willing to give it a chance. And it certainly proved its worth in, in some areas, although there were areas that were critiqued and rightly so. Now, I was listening to your mini break podcast earlier this evening with two of our favorite and semi-regular guests here, Nick McCarville and Blair Henley, who are both fantastic individuals, not even to mention their uh, analysis of the great sport of tennis. Uh, what what has the overall reaction been from the tennis people you've been speaking to and in, in your circle where you are in terms of how this inaugural Davis Cup finals, uh, you know, uh, came to be and, and how it delivered or didn't deliver? Well, you mentioned this earlier when you said people are coming around you, and I have to ask myself not to get meta here because that's not me at all. And I think listeners of our podcast would know that, you know, I'm the least bit sophisticated you could be about tennis. But I do wonder how much we live in a bubble. Like, because anytime there's a uh, prominent tennis event, I'm going to get texts. You know, I had people sending me the photo of Roger Federer playing his exhibition against Alex Virov all over South America. And, you know, that wasn't Davis Cup, but it broke through the mainstream. So I heard about it now for my tennis. You know, we talked about it with Nick and Blair yesterday. And, you know, the general sense I seem to be getting is you have two groups of people. You have the people who and it's much like when you find any issue in tennis, whether it's scoring changes at the slams, people don't like three out of five. They prefer two out of three or vice versa. In college, it was add or no add scoring. You have the traditionalists who love the way things were. They love the aspect of three out of five sets for Davis Cup. They love, you know, the in the feeling of playing in a home match, whether it's in Australia. Those crowds always stand out in France, in England, in Canada, in the U.S., wherever you want to go, in Argentina, you know, especially in the smaller countries who don't get a chance often to uh, broadcast world stage tennis. So when you can go to an India or you know, a Pakistan or just any sort of country and have this sort of event, it stands out there. Uh, those fans don't like it. But I think we saw at, from the tennis Twitter community at large, even those who don't like the idea of, of, the, of how it's being played out, the politics of it all, the structure, they love product how could you not like watching Rafa Nadal with his ab strain you know play multiple doubles deciding rubbers play Denis Shapovalov in the last match of the year last match of the decade on the ATP circuit to solidify his place you know right alongside Novak Djokovic as one in one a in terms of ATP players of the decade uh, again I know this is that's long-winded but 
it, it's just it's so difficult because it's only one year that you really do have to look at all the different parts and why people, you know, I could barely watch any of it live. That sucks. And that is an obstacle that has to be overcome. But ultimately, kind of, if it's a fan for sports, you got to like the product you're watching. And how could you watch this weekend, even as a you know unbiased? You know, I don't have a stake in either Canada or Spain winning, and it was just good tennis. Yeah, yeah, uh, that I think that's the the key point to, to hit on that that Arash Madani uh, said with us earlier. You know, the tennis saved it. When you have a great product, um, you know, we we ha- we'll have to figure out. Well, not me, but uh, PK and and Davis Cup <laughs> will have to figure out the the logistics of how to make some of those issues uh, work and and fix kind of the the outside things. But but for fans, if you get great tennis um, that we can access, that'll be key. <laughs> be be able to watch that great tennis. Um, uh, then it's going to be okay uh, because that's what uh, ultimately we're all uh, interested in seeing, right? So uh, that's uh, that's what we got, especially from Canada this past week, which was historic, a, a run to a Davis Cup final. And uh, apologies, Alex, for taking out the United States, though uh, I do really <laughs> do really feel the Canadians were much more highly invested or became invested in Canada's result at, at Davis Cup uh, over maybe the casual American fan. Um, I, I know I'll, I'll be hopping on your podcast, I think, within the next week, uh, Alex. So I, I look forward to coming on, whether it's whether it's mini break or crack rackets or, or one of your one of your, one of your 22 podcasts, one of your 35 podcasts. Uh, we look I look forward to chatting again. I don't know if you guys can tell, but I have long winded answers. And sometimes that's, you know, a mini break podcast, long winded answers. Sometimes it's meant for an interview. Sometimes it's meant that we go three wide at crack records. I will say since we're on Canadian soil, last Davis cup thing, because sneak preview for the listeners and why I will, again, I think it's going to be a mini break podcast where we're going to start our off season preview. I want you to have you guys on to talk a little, uh, whomever it may be. And we'd love to have both of you, by the way, you're both obviously invited, but for Team Canada, uh, for Denis Shapovalov specifically, who was the star of this Davis Cup, really the star of the last two months of the ATP Tour. Um, obviously, the coaching change is a big thing you turn to. Having a guy like the Kyle Usney behind you, the solace you can take knowing someone who's talking in your ear is as successful as he was. Um, but it's just, what do you think for Dennis shifted? Because I think I, I have it written here, he went... 22 and 10 from Winston Salem on to end the season. I mean, his losses, none of them were bad. The worst one, maybe a loss he took um, to Corena Busta twice, but like he was good down the home stretch, maybe her catch in that Winston Salem final, but that was after a double header. What do you guys think switched for Dennis Shapovalov? And again, listeners, this is a preview of what you're going to get on the mini break. I will just say quickly, I, I think uh, Mikhail Yuzhny found a way to tap into a different type of motivation for Dennis each and every week at each tournament he arrived in. That was something that I, I know Yuzhny imparted to Dennis. Find something special uh, e- each and every week at the tournament you're playing uh, to kind of cling on to uh, that you like, whether it's the city that you're in or, or the atmosphere specifically. And then from that point on, he's just been playing a little more quickly, taking the ball a little earlier. And I think kind of seeing points develop uh, almost sooner, like he's anticipating and reacting just a lot better than he was. That that would be my short answer, at least. 
I'm going to go with what Ben said because that sounded so articulate and also so correct. It's just part of the maturing, the growth of the player and having the right voices sort of calming influences on him. And we all know that Dennis has the talent and it's uh, starting to come together. He's only 20 years old still, but he feels like he's been around for a while. And it's part of that learning curve and, and, and having a few of these long 11-month seasons under his, under his belt now. Yep. Hey, Alex, thank you. Thank you for joining us again. And we, we do look forward to coming down on your soil and, uh, and continuing this discourse with you uh, really soon. No, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we Again, home and home is a staple of sports, as I mentioned beforehand. So we look forward to having one or both of you. And thank you again for having me. Thank you very much. That was Alex Gruskin of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. You can find his work with the Mini Break Podcast and Cracked Rackets Podcast. And you can find all of the work uh, with the Tennis Channel. Um, and you can follow them on Twitter at Tennis as well. Uh, we've we've uncovered a lot of content, which is great. Uh, we want to wrap with just kind of news of the week, I think. Um, we mentioned Roger Federer and Sasha Zverev. Zverev playing these monster exhibitions in South America, five matches in six days, and uh, unbelievable the crowds that Roger Federer can draw. Yeah, they're bringing tennis to a part of the world that doesn't necessarily get the the big names as as often as as other locations, and to pull in forty two thousand spectators for a match in Mexico is simply astounding. Uh, that's like the crowd of a, a football game almost, and and Federer obviously has the ability to do that. There's few people that could do it. Federer is one of them, and that eclipses the previous largest crowd ever for a tennis match, which was in 2010 in Brussels between Venus Williams and Kim Kleisters for uh, an exhibition. So Federer has that that power. Uh, seemed like him and Zverev were having a good time all week long. Uh, Federer pocketed apparently almost $8 bucks for those few days of work, which is not too shabby either, and uh, I didn't hear quite what Zverev took in, but I'm sure he's not complaining uh, either from a financial <laughs> I doubt it, I doubt standpoint. It. But uh, yeah, in terms of outside of Davis Cup action, there was certainly those exhibitions that were happening. Uh, a shame, clearly, what's going on in Colombia. Their match there was called off just a few hours ahead of time due to a government-imposed curfew and showing you how politics obviously can can take precedence and, and safety of spectators and things like that too. So uh, an unfortunate situation there. Uh, but otherwise it seemed like a, a positive trip for the two players bringing tennis down there and interacting with the uh, South American uh, t- tennis fans. Uh, aside from that, we had some off-court news uh, on the WTA side, a lot of coaching changes, which shouldn't come as a surprise. And uh, Ben, what were some of the uh, the switches that we should look forward to in 2020 here? Yeah, some interesting ones. The most recent being a former number one and, of course, a very solid top five player in Carolina Pliskova. She had parted ways with Conchita Martinez and now has hired longtime ATP coach uh, Daniel Valverdu, uh, who has worked in the past with Stan Favrenka, Andy Murray, Juan Martin Del Potro, Tomas Burdick, uh, and, of course, uh, bringing a few grand slams to uh, Favrinka and Murray's arsenal. And uh, he hasn't coached on the WTA side, so that'll be interesting to see how that partnership works. Uh, Conchita Martinez now joining Garbina Muguruza, who, you know, she had a stretch there, 2015, 2016. You felt like she was just going to take over and be the best player in the world. Absolutely. And uh, Conchita worked with her at, at points during that stretch too. So they're reuniting yep. uh, as the Spaniards split with Sam Sumik after a first-round loss at Wimbledon. Really a disappointing 2019 yes. for uh, Muguruza, so it'll be interesting to see if she can 
bounce back in 2020 with this yeah, change. I certainly think she has the game to do so. Uh, High-profile coach that uh, many people know his name, Sasha Bajan, of course, uh, winning a pair of Grand Slam titles as, as coach of Naomi Osaka and left Kiki Mladenovic towards the end of the season and has teamed up with Diana Yastremska, uh, one of these up-and-coming superstars. Uh, he obviously sees something in, in Diana's game. Uh, not just him. I'm sure uh, most WTA observers recognize her talent. Uh, so he has his new coaching partnership there. And Angelique Kerber, a uh, multiple Grand Slam champion as well, has hired the German coach Dieter Kindelman. Uh, she split with Reiner Schutler in the summer. Uh, Kindelman used to hit with Sharapova. He worked with Madison Keys in the past, Elise Mertens, and uh, Anastasia Pavlichenkova, uh, among a few other players. So he clearly has the resume as well. And we know how well Kerber does on those even years. That's right. She's got a big one. <laughs> coming up clearly yep. uh, now that 2019 is over. Uh, it, it's interesting to note there were a lot of rumors that Kerber might have been teaming up with Sasha Bajan, uh, you know, uh, weeks ago. But it turns out uh, that, that Bajan's gone in a different direction. We should start a pool to see how long we give this Yastremska-Bajan partnership because he's been through quite a few different uh, uh, players over the last couple of years, kind of a revolving door. And uh, you knew when he was parting ways with Mladenovic, a player who had shown some uh, definite improvements under his uh, tutelage and, and time working with him, there must have been someone big that he was going to. And Yastremska is someone we've talked about uh, throughout the season as a real up-and-coming player and someone we expect big things from. And clearly, Sasha Bajan saw that uh, the same way. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, you have been listening to Matchpoint Canada just wrapping up. We mentioned we had a, a tennis ball signed by Simona Halep to give away to uh, one of our listeners. Uh, it was signed at Rogers Cup in Toronto this past summer. And, uh, Mike, I know you've drawn our winner. I kind of don't want to give it away because I kind of like to keep that one for myself. But <laughs> yeah. it doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, unfortunately but it's a pretty cool one having it signed by Wimbledon winner Simona Halep and congratulations to uh, Philip T. Uh, Busey or Bozy, depending on how you pronounce your name uh, thanks for putting your name in there and you are the winner so we will have Tennis Canada ship that tennis ball out to you uh, maybe you'll even get it in time for Christmas there you go uh, thanks again for listening to Matchpoint Canada remember you can find us now as part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and we are the official podcast of Tennis Canada we will talk to you next time 